Happy Easter, everyone. And we're going to be continuing in our series that we've been doing about Jesus. It's about Christology, which is just the study of Christ. And so today on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about how Jesus died according to the scriptures, how he was buried, and he was resurrected according to the scriptures. Now, if you've been at Revolve any number of years, you know that it's like a personal thing of mine that I tend to do really weird sermons on Easter Sunday. Um, But I decided that this would be the year when I would do a normal Easter Sunday sermon. And so you're welcome. Yep, my wife is clapping. When, <laughs> you can look them up. We've had some pretty strange sermons on Easter Sundays. Anyway, um, the passage that we're going to preach from today is a classic passage on the resurrection, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, and it's what's known as um, kind of an apologetics passage. Apologetics is just the defense of the faith. And so what we see here happening is that Paul is going to be defending the truth of the resurrection. So I want you to imagine for a moment here that you are a detective investigating a crime scene and you get to the, you know, the location wherever the crime was committed and you see all kinds of evidence scattered around the room. Broken window, footprints in the mud, there's some fingerprints on a doorknob, half-eaten Twinkie. And as you piece these clues together, you try to form a picture of what happened. You have no idea why the Twinkie's there, but the other stuff, you're starting to piece it together. You know, in much the same way, when we approach the truth of the resurrection, when we approach the gospel message that Jesus Christ died, he was a real man who died on a cross, he was a real man who was buried in a tomb, and then three days later that tomb was empty, and that it's a historical reality that people had to figure out what that meant, that you have both secular historians as well as church fathers. You have all kinds of people who are writing about the fact that there was a man named Jesus. Um, Matter of fact, in today's day and age, almost anyone, any historian who denies the existence of a real name named Jesus, a real man named Jesus, is kind of laughed about and dismissed in modern um, scholarly work. And so when we look at the history of the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection to say, well, okay, Jesus was a man who lived, and yes, he was a man who died, but the big question is, was he a man who raised from the dead? And so as we look at the historical evidence for the resurrection of Christ, and we piece these things together, we can actually come up with a fairly compelling case for its reality. And this is what the Apostle Paul, who we're going to learn a little bit more about his story later in the message, but this is what the Apostle Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's going to point out about how there's these internal evidence, these prophecies that the Scriptures made that are fulfilled. He's going to point out that there's eyewitness evidence, which is the basis for having any verdict in a court of law. And then he's going to point out the most powerful evidence of all, which is the transformed lives of those who have surrendered and encountered this risen Jesus. And so in the same way, we're going to investigate this evidence, look at what the Scripture says, and piece this together for ourselves. And so let's begin here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Now let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, by the way, I'm reading from the NLT today, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preach to you. Good news is just the actual translation of gospel, just in case you didn't know that. 
I preached the good news to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. And so here Paul is beginning by saying, look, you have heard the gospel at this, this Corinthian city, which is in Greece. You've heard the gospel, and when you heard it, you received it. And that's great. The gospel is powerful, and it's effective, and it's good news, but it's only good news if it's true. And if it's true, it has the power to do something. Specifically, it says in the ESV, to save your soul. But if it's not true, then it has no power to save your soul at all. See, there's many churches today all over the world that are speaking because it's Easter and that's what you do. You go to church on Easter and you hear this message. And we're glad everybody is here. We're glad the people are at churches hearing about the resurrection. But as I did a quick Google search... And what churches tend to talk about on Easter Sunday and what they plan to talk about on this Easter, because some churches begin um, putting their messages out, you know, the week before because they have multiple services, this sort of thing. Here are some of the topics that I saw. Resurrecting old relationships, bringing resurrection to community through social justice, resurrection by moving ahead in loving unity, Resurrection through forgiveness, through renewal, through second chances. Now, all of those things are good and noble causes, and they're all fine and dandy. It's good to aim for forgiveness in relationships. Jesus taught that. It's good to help the community at large. Jesus taught that. We should tear down walls that divide us. That's good. Jesus talks about that in Ephesians. But none of those topics can save your soul. None of those topics can save your soul. See, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not primarily that he was a good teacher who taught good things that are helpful to us, but the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is primarily not about helping you be a better parent, helping you be a better spouse, or helping you be a better functioning member of society. Those are all secondary and tertiary benefits. The gospel is primarily about saving your soul to the glory of God and your good. And Paul wants to remind his audience here that the gospel is good. It's the salvation of your soul, if it's true. But if it's not true, it's not good news. It's really lame news. And it all hinges upon the gospel and the resurrection. So Paul continues in verse 3. He says this, Look, I passed on to you what was most important. Let's not get hung up on all of the non-important things, okay? I passed on to you what was most important, what had also been passed on to me. What is that, Paul? Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. He was buried And he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. That's of primary importance. Now, as churches, as Christians, as people who live in a country that has a history of Christianity, we get hung up on a lot of other issues, but this is of primary importance. Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, and Christ was buried and he was raised in accordance with the scriptures. Let's talk about first, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. 
Um, there's a, an author named Lee Strobel. He wrote a famous book called The Case for Christ. Maybe some of you have heard of that book or read that book. And in that book, he tells a story of a man, a friend of his, who went into his office, and he had printed out on, the, a, on a piece of paper some words. And he had no reference, no backstory, no explanation where it was from, when it was written, why it was written. He simply took this piece of paper and he shared it with everyone in his office and he asked them, what is this about and where is it found? And this is what he had on the piece of paper. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Those are transgressions and iniquities are just other words for sin. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And he showed just those words to everybody in his office. And he said, what's that about? And where is it from? And 100% of the people in his office said that it was about Jesus. It was about Jesus. And he said, well, where is it found? And almost everybody said, the New Testament. But it's not from the New Testament. It's from the book of Isaiah, which was written almost 800 years before Jesus walked the earth. And so here we have something that's 800 years old that is talking about Jesus, who's going to be crucified for our sins. He's going to be pierced for our sins. By the way, it was written hundreds of years before the crucifixion was even invented as a form of execution. And here we have one example of many where it talks about there's going to be a man who's going to be pierced for your sins, who's going to be crushed for your sins, who's going to be punished, and his punishment is going to bring us peace. And because of his wounds, we ourselves will be healed. You know, one of the most amazing things that I enjoy about the Holy Scriptures, about the Bible, is that the more you read it, the more you understand it. And the more you understand it, the more you get a greater appreciation for it. And I find that most people who don't appreciate the scriptures, it's because they've never taken the time to sit down and really read them at length with a guide. Because the scriptures are amazing. When we look at the scriptures, they go to great lengths to explain some key things that are important for our, for our lives, that are important for our future, that are important for your families, that are important for our world. Namely, the scriptures go to great lengths to explain to us that God is a good God, that in Genesis chapter 1, when God created all things by the word of his mouth, he looks at it and he says, it is good. It is very good. But we see just almost immediately in Genesis chapter 3, what happens is the first two humans, Adam and Eve, God said to them, he said, you come to me for knowledge. You come to me for wisdom. You come to me for what you need to live this life. And instead of going to God for those things, Adam and Eve took an alternative path. They went to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they said, if we eat from this tree as they were tempted by one of Satan's enemies, or one of God's enemies, Satan, as they were tempted by Satan, they took from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they said, if we eat from this tree, then we won't need to go to God for wisdom. We won't need to go to God for knowledge. We can go to ourselves because we will be like God. We will know good. We will know evil. And then we ourselves will basically be in the role of God. Mankind rebelled against God. That marks the beginning of sin. But in that same chapter, God makes a promise. It's the first promise God makes 
In Genesis 3.15, he makes a promise that he is going to one day have a descendant of Eve who's going to come, who's going to crush the serpent's head, Satan's head, but he's going to bruise his heel in the process. In other words, even there in Genesis chapter 3, we see that there is going to be a death-defying, conquering act, but it's going to come at a wound to the one who's doing it. In Genesis 3, and if we jump all the way to Ephesians chapter 2, we see the impact of that sin. That impact of that sin that it curses not just Adam and Eve, but across, it curses all of their progeny. It curses all of creation. The ground is cursed. Children are cursed. Childbirth is cursed. Work is cursed. The enemy is cursed. And the world enters into a cursed situation. And Ephesians chapter 2 it describes that impact of that curse. And it says that because of that rebellion, we are dead in our sins. And because of that rebellion and because of that soul death that we have upon our birth, we don't live for the right things. We live for ourselves. We live for pleasure. We live for everything besides what we're supposed to live for. And then the worst news of it all is that Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 to explain the inevitable consequence of all of that is that we are destined to receive wrath. And if that was the end of the story, it would be terrible. Even if you try to say it in a positive, upbeat way, it'd be terrible news. But it doesn't end there. Because that prophecy in Genesis chapter 3 was then unpacked further in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 17 and Genesis 22 and in the story of Joseph and in the Exodus through the Red Sea and the Passover lamb and in the, the Davidic covenant. And it goes on and on and on. And God continues to give like an unfolding flower, a greater picture of the one who is actually going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head. And it's the God-man Jesus. You see, because in the Old Testament, the only way to pardon someone for their sin was that something innocent needed to be killed in their place. And so if you committed a sin, you had to take an innocent lamb and you had to kill it at your own hands. We talked about this when we went through Leviticus. And you had to have the priests put that blood on the altar so that you could be forgiven and that innocent lamb would die. But the scriptures also make it clear that the blood of animals can never actually remove sin. It's not enough. There would need to be a greater sacrifice. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus was born to die. Jesus came to die. This was the very reason for which he came, that he would die on a cross as a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, he dies instead of me. An atoning sacrifice so that God's wrath is satisfied so that I could be set free. This is what Jesus did, and this is what the scriptures point to. And so what's part one of the gospel, according to Paul? Jesus Christ came to save sinners from wrath on account of their sin, and he did this by dying on the cross as a perfect, sinless substitute. The second thing Paul says is this, Christ was buried and he was raised on the third day, just as the scriptures said. The resurrection marks a new beginning. The resurrection marks a new humanity. Actually, the Bible says that Jesus is like a second Adam because as Adam was the first of humanity, Jesus is the first, like a second Adam, of a new humanity. 
a humanity that's born not just of the flesh, but is born of the flesh and the spirit, a spiritual humanity that will not die. And you'll say, well, I know for a fact that we die, but Jesus says that we will die, but even though we die, we will live because we will be resurrected, forgiven and redeemed, not resurrected with a bum knee, resurrected the way that it should be, walking in the garden in the presence of God, resurrected, enjoying a creation that has been made new and it's no longer tainted by sin, resurrected to the Garden of Eden as our Lord designed it. And this too is predicted in the Scriptures. This too was prophesied about. It was according to the Scriptures. Just a few references. Psalm 16. I almost was going to preach on this psalm today. But there's one verse in particular that the Apostle Peter cites in Acts chapter 2. This is in Psalm 16.10. It says, For you will not abandon my soul to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. Peter assigns that verse to meaning Christ when he preaches in Acts chapter 2 in the best sermon Peter ever gave. And then in Isaiah 53 that we read from Isaiah 53 earlier, continuing in that passage, it says, yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. In other words, it was God's plan to crush Jesus. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, we shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. In other words, even though he's been crushed as a guilt offering, his days will continue. The will of the Lord will not just to crush him. It says right here, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, which Jesus experienced on the Garden of Gethsemane and on that cross, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous because he shall bear their sins. And so even in this same passage, it's not just talking about Jesus being crushed for iniquities and crushed for sins, but that, that in the midst of that, he will continue and his days will be prolonged. Why? Because he will be raised from the grave. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up so that we might live before him. That some believe this to refer to the nation of Israel, but many others believe this to be a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. It mentions revival on the third day, and the we referring to the fact that we now, as his church, are called his body. That the Old Testament is littered with, with prophecies and signposts that are pointing to the resurrection, that it's going to happen Jonah 1.17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is the passage that Jesus cites in Matthew 12 when he says, I will give you one sign that will prove everything that I'm saying is true. And if that, that sign takes place, then you can guarantee that Christianity is not a myth. And the sign is this. It will be the sign of Jonah. And they all went, you're going to get swallowed by a fish? What he really meant was he was going to go into that tomb and be dead. And then he was going to be raised from the grave. I've traveled all over the world. And I can tell you this. There's lots of claims from lots of religions. There's lots of gurus. There's lots of teachers. There's lots of philosophers. 
There's lots of erudite academics who have a lot to say. But none of them ever came back from the dead to prove what they said. And that's one of the things, just one of the things, that makes Jesus unique. So what's part two of the gospel? Jesus didn't stay dead because dead people aren't very useful. He didn't stay dead. He came back from the grave. And when that happened, God authenticated his message. God authenticated his words, his success by raising him from the grave. And not just raising him from the grave, but we're going to talk about this next week. Raising him and then seating him at the right hand of power next to the Father as the highest authority in heaven and earth. This is what Paul says in Acts 17 when he's in Athens at a place called the Areopagus, which is where philosophers would just go and debate. And Paul says this in Acts 17. He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, to turn to him. He, he's ignored this. He's looked over your sins and your struggles for years in ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. In the future, we don't know when it is. We don't know whether it's tomorrow or in a thousand years, but he's fixed a day on which God will judge the world by the measure of righteousness. And the man who will judge, who he has appointed, he has proved who that man will be by raising him from the dead. That Jesus will be the judge. The scriptures point to these things. See, these two themes, this theme of that the Messiah, the Savior, will die and the Savior will be raised. The Scripture is littered with things that point to this. And this is all internal, internal evidence for the veracity or the truthfulness of the Bible. In other words, we can look to the books of the Bible and we can know that, oh, they were written over the course of thousands of years by many, by many different people from all walks of life across multiple continents. We can see that there is a consistent scarlet thread that is all pointing to Jesus. 353-ish prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It's mathematically impossible, not mathematically improbable, mathematically impossible for that to happen, unless you have someone who is sovereign over all things controlling it. To summarize, Jesus died for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He didn't die for your sins to give you a new list of rules. He didn't die for your sins so that you would finally kick smoking. Jesus died for your sins so you could be forgiven. And then he was raised from the dead as king over everything so that we too, who are his body, can be raised over everything and live forever with him. Paul continues in verse 5. This Jesus was seen by Peter and then the 12 apostles. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then Now they've all died, guys, just so you know. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Now listen, in a court of law, witnesses are important. If I claim that you committed a crime, but there's no witnesses and there's no evidence, it's very difficult to prove. And the same thing was true in Jesus' day, that everything needed to be substantiated by witnesses. So Paul wants the Corinthian church and us, because we're reading this book, 
to know that this, that Jesus's resurrected body wasn't just seen by Mary Magdalene or just seen by the other Mary or just seen by Peter. It wasn't just seen by the disciples. It was seen by more than 500 disciples at one event. One event they saw. And Paul even goes as far to say, look, these guys are alive. These guys and girls are alive. You can go talk with them. They saw the resurrected Christ. Now, having one eyewitness in a murder trial is important. But if 500 people at one event saw this happen, it's a closed case. It's a done deal. You see, we forget these things because we're distanced from it in history, but we have no problem accepting historical documents that have far less evidence, far more problems with their truthfulness, far less manuscripts, and we accept them as truth without batting an eye, comparing the handful of manuscripts for something like Plato to the thousands and thousands of manuscripts with early dates to the New Testament, dating back to around the year 100 A.D., we have a faith that is built and substantiated by truth. Paul is arguing that this death and resurrection, this isn't some fairy tale. This isn't some myth that people made up. This is proven true and it's therefore reliable. John, who's one of Jesus' inner circle, this is what he says in 1 John chapter 1. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, which we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and which we have heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So in addition to hundreds of prophecies, in addition to not just prophecies, but hundreds and hundreds of signposts throughout the Old Testament that point to the Messiah, that point to the New Testament, despite all of those things, on top of all of those things, we have hundreds of eyewitness accounts verifying the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 10, and this is... What Paul says, he says, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me. Oh, wait, I missed a verse. Paul says in verse uh, 8 and 9, he says, and then last, Jesus came to me. Jesus appeared to me as one untimely born, as one untimely born. You know, Paul says that he's untimely born because while Paul was walking to Damascus, all of a sudden this great light shined upon him and he fell off his horse and he went blind and he heard a voice saying, Paul, or Saul was his name back then, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the reason he made that accusation against Saul was because Saul was in the process of killing Christians. And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you persecute. And that's why Saul is saying one untimely born, because he saw Jesus later. And Paul says now, he's went from Saul to Paul, he says, whatever I am now, it's because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. 
I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I doing the work, but it was God working through me by his grace and power. See, now Paul brings up another important piece of evidence to support the validity of the resurrection. Not just that it was predicted, not just that it was seen by many, but that all of us can see the impact of the resurrection on people. Paul says that I was untimely born, that my story is different from all of the apostles. Paul didn't travel with Jesus. Paul wasn't part of his inner group. No, Paul hated Christians, persecuted and killed Christians, and was eager and zealous to do so. In modern words, Paul was a terrorist. Paul was an extremist. In his own words, he says this in 1 Timothy, I used to blaspheme the name of Jesus And in my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Jesus Christ. And Saul indeed changed. He went from Saul to Paul. He went from violently oppressing Jesus to being willingly to die for him, willing to die for him. He went from being proud and arrogant to humble and kind. And he endured numerous terrible sufferings. And still he was filled with love despite all of that. And it wasn't just Paul. Jesus' brothers, his real brothers, they went from doubting him and mocking him to believing in him. Jesus' brother, James, he's the one who wrote the book of James, becomes the leader of the early church. Others went from doubters to believers, from quiet nobodies to remarkable somebodies. Peter went from being a loud and obnoxious coward to being a bold evangelist. These are the same men who fled, one of them naked, when Jesus was arrested. And all of them but one were martyred for their belief. And the one who survived... He survived after being boiled alive in a pot of oil. Who would do that for a practical joke? Who would endure such suffering if it weren't true? They were all transformed by the resurrection. Because the third part of the gospel implied here, not written succinctly, is this. Jesus sent his Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the future inheritance that we will have upon our resurrection, and that Holy Spirit transforms us and enables us to follow Jesus as King. So we have internal evidence. We have eyewitness testimony. And perhaps most powerfully, we have the transformed lives of those who place their faith in Jesus. And yes, the transformation happens over time. You know, some of you might be here and you might think, look, I'm glad you have faith. Good for you. Faith in itself is helpful regardless of what you believe or where you place it. Faith is just good. Who really cares if Jesus was resurrected? Religion is still helpful, even if it's not necessarily true. And my response to you would be this. If the resurrection isn't true and if Christianity isn't helpful, that means it's actually vile and wicked and deceitful. And if the resurrection isn't true, you should be disgusted by Christianity, and you should not tolerate it. And Paul agrees. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless, and we apostles would be liars, for we have told people that God raised Christ from the grave. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins because there's been no sacrifice to atone for them. And in that case, all who died believing in Jesus are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life so that we might maybe be a little bit more moral, we should be pitied more than anyone in the world. Because what kind of fool delights devotes his life so eagerly to a lie? And what kind of fool gives his money willingly to something that isn't true? And what kind of fool is willing to suffer and be mocked and stand up for something that is a falsehood? If the resurrection never happened, none of this matters. You're wasting your mourning. Without a resurrected Christ, I'm still a sinner and I have no power to change. Self-help won't work because I'm the one who got me here in the first place and I will be held accountable for the things that I've ever said, thought, or done. But Paul continues, but in fact, Christ has been raised. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through one man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. And just as everyone died because of Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will live. See, if Christ was never raised from the dead, if Jesus is just a dude who was nice and then he died, who cares? But if Christ was raised from the dead, as the internal evidence suggests, as the eyewitnesses observed, and as the changed lives around you authenticate, if Christ truly was raised from the dead, it matters. It matters for you. It matters for me. Now, you didn't know me before I met Jesus, but my parents are in the room. Mom and dad, can you wave? Make sure you're not sleeping. There they are. You can ask them all about what I was like, okay? You can ask them all about my teenage years. They'll be glad to tell you the things they know. My wife, Gina, met me right after I became a Christian, and so did her sister, Nicole. And now they can tell you how I've changed over the last 20 years. My in-laws can tell you how I've changed. My kids, hopefully, can tell you how I've changed. Because Jesus is real, and Jesus is resurrected, and I am living proof. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're living proof as well, no matter where you are on that journey. No, perfection doesn't happen until we're dead and resurrected, but you do change over time. Because Jesus says that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. That the old, that means the sin, the shame, the failures, the insecurity, the depression, the old has passed away and the new, the forgiveness, the grace, the freedom, the redemption, the love, the purpose, the new has come. You see, the truth is that today you can choose to either reject all of the evidence that points to Jesus or you can receive it. And this is what John says in John chapter 1. To all who received him and believed him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but by a birth that comes from God. Look to the evidence. Look to the inside of the Bible, look outside the Bible, look at the eyewitnesses, look at the changed lives. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's not. Either Jesus died for your sins so you could be forgiven, or he didn't. Either Jesus was resurrected so you could live forever forgiven, or he wasn't. 
Either Jesus sent his Holy Spirit to transform all who truly believe, or that's a lie. It's either one or the other, but it can't be some wishy-washy middle ground. It's either true or it's not. There's not a spectrum of truth here. And if you decide, as you see the way your spouse has been changing over the years, as you see the way your parent has grown in grace, as you see the way other followers of Jesus love each other, if you decide that I don't think it's real, that's your decision. But if you want to receive him by faith, there's nothing stopping you. Let's pray. Father God, as we draw this service to a close after one more song, God, we just rejoice over the fact that we believe the resurrection is true. And we believe, is it not only true, but it matters for us. It matters for me personally. Father, I pray that even during this last song, you would be drawing hearts. You would be wooing people to yourself. That they would want to follow you as king and realize it's not about trying harder, but it's actually about bending the knee and surrender to Jesus, the King Jesus, that he is who he says he is. He did what he said he did, and he's going to do what he said he will do. Lord, give us the faith to believe. In your name we pray, amen.